pray with me? Lord, as we open up your word now by your spirit, um, help us to see and to, and to seize that which you have given to us, this amazing forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Help us, Lord, we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, we're continuing this morning our series, our Lent series on thinking about the cross-shaped life of Jesus and what it means for us to follow him in that life. And this morning, we're going to take our cues first from an amazing act in the life of Christ and secondly from an amazing teaching in the life of Christ. Both of them focus on this issue we've been singing about already this morning, forgiveness. So first, consider the act that we want to focus in on the life of Christ. It's from Luke chapter 23. It says, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified Jesus and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. So it's important for us to consider where Jesus is. He is on the cross. That horrible Roman instrument of torture and humiliation and death. And it's important to consider what he is doing. He is forgiving the very ones who put him there. Father, forgive them. Who is the them? that Jesus is seeking forgiveness for. He is praying for the religious leaders who tried him and sentenced him based on trumped up charges and contradictory testimony. They are them. He is praying for those witnesses who lied out of fear of the authorities. They are them. He's praying for Pilate and Herod. They are them. He's praying for Peter who denied him over and over and over and the rest of the 12 disciples who abandoned him in the garden. They are them. He's praying for the crowds shouting, crucify him, crucify him. They too are them. I suppose in the most focused sense, Jesus is extending forgiveness to the soldiers, the very ones who physically put him there, the ones callously gambling for his clothes while he hangs above them naked and prays for their forgiveness. He's praying for those soldiers when he says, Father, forgive them. They are them. He's praying for all of his enemies who actively wished him dead. And in some way, I sense that Jesus is praying for us. For you and me when he prays, Father, forgive them. And this is the great work that he is doing. So this morning, we're confronted with the question, what does it mean for us to follow Jesus' pattern of forgiveness? Even when it extends to those who put nails in his hands and the spear in his side. And so to answer that question... I'd like for us to turn now to Jesus' amazing teaching on the subject of forgiveness that's found in Matthew 18. You can turn in your Bibles there. We'll start in verse 21. It says, Peter came up and said to Jesus, Lord, 
How often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to Peter, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. So I want to notice several things here. First of all, notice that it is Peter who's asking this question. So this is a question for disciples, right? This is a question about following Jesus' way. And Peter is thinking out loud the thought that anyone who's ever been sinned against repeatedly is, is wrestling with. Um, when, you've been, when you've been wronged repeatedly by someone you trust or you care about, whether that someone is an addict or a serial pornographer or a recurring liar or a thief or a gossip, we're always thinking in those situations, how many times do I have to forgive this person? And Peter offers up seven times, which is really generous. I mean, think about it. For, for those of you who are parents, the seventh time your kid disobeys you that same day, forgiveness is not exactly the thing on the front of your mind, right? Boarding school, yes. Forgiveness, no. Not, not so much. But in their day, um, the rabbis, some of the rabbis taught that three times was enough forgiveness. On a fourth offense, you'd exhausted your obligation to forgive. And honestly, even that seems pretty reasonable, right? Uh, if, if, if someone lies to you three times, if they betray you three times, if they slander you three times, if they steal from you three times, to forgive is really pretty generous so when Jesus says you must forgive 77 times and some of your Bibles make it an even loftier standard that says 70 times seven times when Peter hears Jesus say that he must have gotten that deer in the headlights kind of look um, and been thinking seriously 77 times that's 10 times greater than my overly generous proposal. But don't miss that the number really isn't the point, right? This is not an invitation to keep score. 75, 76, 77, whammo, right? That's not the idea. It's not the point. The point is simply this. Um, you, you must forgive, right? You must forgive. What Jesus is doing here, he's giving a, uh, in this wild, wild command to forgive, um, he's counterbalancing an Old Testament statement that was made by a fellow named Lamech way back in Genesis 4. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. And rather than revenge, Jesus says his forgiveness is like that. The point is you forgive as it is needed. You forgive every time, just like Jesus. We are to become, as one writer called us, 77ers. That's who we're supposed to be. And now Jesus does what he does best. He tells a story to rock Peter's world all the more, and ours. It starts in verse 23. Jesus says, Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So how much did he owe? 10,000 talents. It's not a 
a unit that transfers readily into our day, but one modern-day scholar ended up with an estimate around 10 billion, billion with a B. So he owed somewhere in the ballpark of $10 billion. A talent was the largest measure of currency they had, and 10,000, a myriad, was their largest number. So the idea here is something like when our kids say a gazillion, right? It is a huge, unpayable mountain of debt. And when they heard Jesus saying that he owed um, 10,000 talents, their jaws would have dropped open. This was a staggering debt that more was befitting of a nation than a person. So in verse 25, since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. And the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. But in a word, this amount is simply unpayable. And his whole family and his possessions are to be sold as a result. So in desperation, he makes an impossible promise. Have patience with me and I will pay you everything. Right. So like, give me a six-month extension so I can scrape together the $10 billion. Right? It's not going to happen. But what happens next is more staggering than the debt. Watch this closely in verse 27. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. So this is, this is, this is amazing. The guy asks for time. Just give me a little more time. I'll pay you back. And instead, he gets a flood of mercy. And his debt is forgiven the whole mountain of it, the whole gazillionty billion of it is forgiven. I don't know about you, but I like this master. He is merciful. Verse 28, when that servant went out, and you get the idea in Jesus' story that he leaves one conversation, he walks right into the next one. He found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. So a hundred denarii was 100 days wages for a laborer, uh, let's say it's around $10,000. Okay. So if I'm this other servant, this second servant, I'm thinking this is the best possible time for me to run into a guy that I owe $10,000 to. He's just been forgiven a billion dollars. This is perfect. Not exactly. Verse 28, seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. And the, the second service, you, servant uses almost the same words that the first servant used. You'd think he'd be having one of those deja vu moments. Hmm, this sounds really familiar to me. Right? Oh yeah, I just used that same line to get forgiven an entire mountain of unpayable debt. Hmm, maybe I should pass it on to this very payable debt. But no. In verse 30, it says, He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So the unbelievables keep piling up in Jesus' story. You've got an unbelievable amount of debt, followed by an unbelievable amount of forgiveness, 
followed by an unbelievable amount of jerkness, right? Who does this? Who gets this kind of forgiveness and doesn't pass it on? Well, that's what the other servants were thinking too. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. And then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers. Some of your Bibles might read torturers. Until he should pay all his debt. So, just to be clear in Jesus' story, right? The master is God. He represents God. And we are the servant who's been forgiven a $10 billion debt. The debt is our sin. Do you see your sin like that? As an unpayable $10 billion mountain of debt owed to God? Or is it a small manageable pile that you can probably work off and maybe even sweep under the rug? Jesus says, our sin is a mountainous thing. There's no way we can pay it off. But by the work of Jesus on the cross, forgiveness has been purchased for all who entrust themselves to him. This morning, have you been forgiven the debt of your sin before God? Are you trusting Jesus to forgive your sin debt? Or are you trying to work it off by being good enough? If you're not sure, you can transfer your trust to Jesus even this morning before you leave. There'll be a chance at the end of our service. Several of our leaders at the close of the service will be standing near the back and they'd love nothing more than to talk with you and pray with you briefly and help you know God's forgiveness for all of your sins. So if you have entered into that relationship of trust with Jesus and if that transaction has taken place and forgiveness has been applied to your account and you had that conversation with your master and he forgave all your sins, you walked away debt-free, how is that being passed on to those who need your forgiveness? Is there anybody you're not talking to these days? Is there anybody you're holding a grudge against? Anybody you're avoiding when you can? Somebody that's lied to you or about you. Somebody that's betrayed a trust. Somebody that's cheated on you. Somebody that's messed with your kids. Somebody that's stolen from you. Somebody that's gossip about you. Maybe several times over. These people may very well owe you a kind of very legitimate um, $10,000 type debt. And that's nothing to sneeze at. Neither is betrayal or deceit or manipulation or whatever else has been done to you. But if you roll it up to the 10 billion that's been forgiven you by, by Christ, that, that puts things in perspective, doesn't it? 
So if you converted the unit of talents to the unit of denarii in our story, so we're dealing with apples and apples, um, one scholar suggests it's a 60 million to 100 denarii ratio. 60 million was, was forgiven, 100 was forgiven. And so we read in the book of Ephesians, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Have you extended forgiveness as you have received it? And Jesus now states the punchline from his story in the clearest of terms. And this is essentially what he says, you had better forgive from the heart. Listen to what he says in verse 35. He steps out of the story and he ends our passage this way. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. One writer put it this way of the first servant. He said, this man lacks not only an appreciation of the king's forgiveness in the past, but he also lacks a fear of the king's judgment in the future. And the sobering reality is that God, like the king in Jesus' story, won't stand for us damming up forgiveness at the edge of our property. If we do, we run the risk that he might damn us. Jesus is clear. He says he will withhold forgiveness from those who refuse to forgive. If you don't forgive, you won't be forgiven, Jesus says. And this is not an isolated teaching. Jesus taught this often. In Luke chapter 6, he says, Do not judge, and you will not be judged. Do not condemn, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. In Matthew 6, he teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he says, for if you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. And this teaching is shocking and it's troubling. It's troubling theologically because it sounds like Jesus might be saying that God's forgiving grace depends upon me. And that doesn't seem right. It's not, but don't be sidetracked by that trouble and miss the main point. The main point is this, forgive. Forgive one another. Forgive those who've wronged you, even those who have wronged you repeatedly and don't deserve your forgiveness at all. This is absolutely vital. This is what it means to follow Jesus in this cruciform, cross-shaped life. We must forgive. We must. But there is that naughty theological problem here, right? And at one level, almost all scholars are agreed that if you do not forgive, it does severe damage to your relationship with God. It distances you from God. And I wonder, is that why God sometimes feels so distant? That there might be grudges we bear and the forgiveness we refuse to offer, that it's driving a wedge not between us, just us and another person, but it's driving a wedge between us and God? The language in our story, however, suggests that the consequence of unforgiveness might be more than even just distancing us from God, than damaging our communion with Him. It might imperil our very souls. Listen to how Pastor John Piper writes about it. He says, the greatest risk we face as a church in 
these days is not that we may lose an organ or that we may lose money or that we may lose members or that we may lose staff or that we may lose reputation. The greatest risk is that we may lose heaven because one way to lose heaven is to hold fast to an unforgiving spirit and so prove that we've never been indwelt by the spirit of Christ. He is not saying, nor is Jesus teaching, that we merit God's forgiveness by our own. But he is saying that to harbor such unforgiveness is an indicator that you may never have really experienced the forgiveness of God. Jesus said this elsewhere. He said, he who is forgiven little loves little. And it seems that our servant friend likely wasn't forgiven at all. See, this lavish act of forgiveness touched his bank account, but it never touched his heart. And so the Apostle Paul writes these sobering words, heed them well, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. And the passing on of undeserved forgiveness is one of those tests. It's not the only test, I suppose, but it is an important one. To be clear, the Bible teaches without question that this lavish forgiveness is available to all who simply ask for it. It's a gift that can't be earned or merited. Famously, Ephesians 2 reads, it is by grace you have been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And it is plain in Scripture that this gift of grace and forgiveness is supposed to transform us, to set us free not only from our sins, but from the bondage of unforgiveness as well. So this morning, will you take the first step and receive Christ's forgiveness for your sins? You're going to have a chance to do that in just a moment. And if you've taken that first step, will you take the next step and pass on the lavish, undeserved forgiveness that you have received? And if you're a follower of Christ, then you really have no choice in this matter unless you're going to stop following. Because this is the way of Christ. And the mandate is clear. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. We must forgive our spouses and our neighbors and our coworkers and our parents and our pastors every time they wrong us. Even when they're wholly undeserving, we must forgive just like Jesus. A forgiveness that is this lavish and undeserved simply must be passed on. It must be. One writer says that Christians live between their justification at the cross and their judgment at the chair. And this story asks them, do you appreciate the cross and do you anticipate the chair? This morning we come to this table as God's people and we remember this forgiveness. Ten billion dollars worth of forgiveness. For deserters and mockers and rebels and us. But before you come to this table and partake of the symbol of forgiveness, take forgiveness from Christ. Take forgiveness. 
And if you've taken Christ's forgiveness and you come here to celebrate it, pass it on first. Resolve to pass it on first before you come to this table. And several of our leaders will be standing near the back of the room as the elements are distributed to you. If you would like someone just to pray with you this morning and help you find forgiveness or help you have grace to give forgiveness, several of our leaders will be standing near the back and they're there just to pray with you and help you find and pass on the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. Um, And so we come together now and remember the forgiveness and grace of God that is ours in Christ, a forgiveness that is greater than all our sins. Pray with me as we get ready for the table, please. So Lord Jesus, we worship you, the God of forgiveness, and mercy beyond our wildest dreams, all of our sins, all of them paid for by your good work on the cross so that we can be free. And we remember that now as we remember together that on the night Jesus, you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it. And you said, this is my body, it is broken for you. And in the same way, after the meal, you took a cup and said, this is the new covenant in my blood. It's for the forgiveness of sins. And so, Jesus, we do this now to remember you.